Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. <laughs> the temperature here has gone down a little bit. Uh, it was you know, around 70 this morning when I came into work, but our building is still without air conditioning. So, you know, we've got, how do you say it, a small problem here? I don't know. I think at least one of our computers has croaked in the heat. The building management promises us that they're going to have air conditioning techs here today, but I'm... Uh, I'm skeptical. But anyhow, we're still here and we're on the air and I'm, I'm hopeful that you can hear me. But I want to start out with a couple of topics here. But my rant for today in, uh, you know, over at Hartman Report is specifically, you know, I mean, the headlines is trickle, trickle down e- economics isn't even a new con. And, you know, that this is, uh, there, there's this new study out. It came out a few months ago, but, it, you know, <laughs> it's new to me from the, the London School of Economics that found that the Reagan-Bush tax cuts, which have added about $18 trillion to our budget deficit, uh, not only haven't caused, quote, job creators to create more jobs, uh, but they've wiped us out. I mean, it just literally wiped us out economically and politically, and they're gutting the middle class. Robert Reich, however he says his name, right? Reich, yeah, there you go. The English pronunciation. Anyhow, he says uh, over at his blog, he says, since the start of the pandemic, now, you know, that's like 14 months ago, right? Uh, Maybe 16 months ago now. Since the start of the pandemic, just 651 American billionaires have gained $1 trillion in wealth. That's now that's enough to have for for those just those those 651 billionaires to mail a check to every American for three thousand dollars. Put another way, that means that three thousand dollars came out of the pocket of every American. And I'm not talking every family. That would be more like, you know, seven, eight thousand dollars for every family. But this is $3,000 for literally every human being in America and still be as rich as they were before the pandemic started. He goes on to say, yet at the same time, more than 20 million Americans are jobless. 8 million have fallen into poverty. 19 million are at risk of eviction and 26 million are going hungry. So how did we get here? You know, have the Republicans copped to this 40 year long hustle? 
you've heard me talk about this before that, that you know back in the 1890s this was called horse and sparrow economics and you know the theory being that if you overfeed horses on oats horses representing rich people oats representing money if you overfeed the horses and oats their manure will have more undigested oats and the sparrows will have more food and that produced the panic of 1896 and then in, in 1920, Warren Harding revived horse and sparrow economics, and he dropped the top tax bracket from 91% down to 25%. And the result was the Roaring Twenties, when the rich got richer, and the working class people got so crushed during the Roaring Twenties that there was this explosion of unionization efforts that led to actual murders of union officials by police all across the country. And then, of course, led directly to the crash of 1929. You would think somehow, you know, after four economic crashes just since Reaganomics started. I mean, you know, in 1987, we had the biggest stock market crash since 1929, eight, nine months after Reagan's second or third big tax cut. You had the Bush Great Recession of 1992 that helped Bill Clinton get elected. You had the second Bush Great Recession of 2008, which helped Barack Obama get elected. And then you had the Trump Great Depression of 2020. And you'd think that, you know, with four economic crashes since the introduction of Reaganomics in 1981, that America would have figured out this doesn't work. But no, we haven't figured it out. So these guys compiled 50 years of data over 18 countries. Our results show, the researchers write, that major tax cuts for the rich increased the top 1% of pre-tax national income in the years following the reform. The magnitude of the effect is sizable. On average, each major reform leads to a rise in top 1% share of national tax, uh, pre-tax income of eight-tenths of a percentage point. So the rich got richer. <clears throat> All this money is transferred from the pockets of working people into the pockets of the morbidly rich. But did those job creators create jobs? Well, here's what these, uh, the London School of Economics says. The results also show that economic performance as measured by real GDP per capita and the unemployment rate is not significantly affected by major tax cuts for the rich. The estimated effect for these variables are statistically indistinguishable from zero. Right. So what's the main result of Reaganomics? Well, the London School of Economics says, overall, our analysis finds strong evidence that cutting taxes on the rich increases income inequality, but has no effect on growth or unemployment. In fact, our results suggest that lower taxes on the rich lead to high earners bargaining more forcefully to increase their own compensation at the direct expense of those lower down the income distribution. So that's what we're finding happens. So how does this play out in America? Well, last year, 2020 in Arizona, this is just one example, just one state, Arizona. The voters of Arizona voted to increase taxes by three and a half percent on people making over a quarter million a year. Raise taxes on the rich. Uh, this was designed to raise $940 million from those taxes that would go to fund the state's crisis-ridden public school system, an underfunded public school system. So what did the Republicans in the Arizona legislature do this year? This is the year that the tax increase on rich people was supposed to go into effect in Arizona. Well, just a few months ago, they passed a law 
a $1.9 billion. Now, keep in mind, Prop 208 was a $900 million increase in taxes. The Arizona Republicans passed a $1.9 billion tax cut that, according to the Prescott Valley News, quote, mainly benefits the wealthy to shield higher earning income taxpayers from the effects of the new 3.5% tax surcharge voters approved in November to boost education funding, end quote. In other words, they cut taxes more than the voters raised them. This is what happens when you have the Republican Party running politics and they are completely owned by, in the pocket of, a subsidiary of billionaire America. And until we get this money out of our, the body of our political system, these billionaire leeches are going to continue, uh, at least the right-wing ones who are, who are you know, really pushing this stuff and controlling the Republican Party are going to continue to make it tough on Americans. I don't know how to say it in any other way. And this is why we need to kill the filibuster, pass the For the People Act, which will demand transparency for dark money groups at the very least. I mean, it's a small thing. And raise taxes back to where they were just, you know, 40 years ago, just the same tax rates we had before Reagan came into office. And we can put our economy back on track. So that's number one. Number two, I'm wondering how you're dealing with the heat. Yesterday, you know, I did the show in here. It was well into the mid-90s here in the studio. Right now it's in the high 80s. Uh, when I got home, we had uh, trees that had literally wilted. We had small trees that, that uh, one of them fell over. I mean, literally wilted. And the, two giant trees in front of our house, the, all the leaves had just kind of collapsed. They just wilted. And I'm sitting there trying to work on, on my next book, and I just felt like crap, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I took my temperature, and it seemed, you know, normal. And I, it, so I took my blood pressure, and it was uh, 92 over 70, over 71. And uh, I was, at that moment, I was uh, texting with uh, Dr. Frank, actually. But I said, you know, what do you think this means? <laughs> my blood pressure is really, really low, and I'm normally high. And he was like, that means you need to drink a lot more water. You've had too much heat. Because I felt like I was going to pass out for a couple hours yesterday. So, uh, you know, this is what happens when we don't get global warming under control because we've got a bunch of fossil fuel billionaires who are fighting every single effort. And we've got an entire political party, the Republican Party. I mean, this is just my experience. We've got roads buckling all over Portland. You've got uh, the, the hospital emergency rooms filled up. You know, we don't yet have a death count in homeless camps, but I guarantee you it's going to be there. You know, what's happened to pets? I mean, we had a right out in front of our studio, there's a crow's nest and one of the little fledging crows, you know, not not really a chick, but, you know, they've got it had feathers and fell out of the nest. I mean, just so hot. Bang on the pavement. Dead. You got, we got birds falling out of the sky here when it hit 115 yesterday. We got a lot of work to do in this country. I'm telling you, we got a hell of a lot of work to do to recover from 40 years of Republican lies and tax cuts and selling out to the fossil fuel industry and selling out to the right-wing billionaires. You got, you know, the, the top corporations in America pay how much in taxes? Nothing in federal income taxes. This is nuts. Anyhow. Tom Harvin here with you. So uh, a couple of years ago, 
While Trump was president, I think it was 2017, Louise was flying someplace alone. The person that she was sitting next to on the plane, they started, they chatted, got this conversation going about what a terrible president Trump was. And this woman sitting behind them, who was listening in on their conversations, starts screaming at them. You know, the, how dare you? And he's And I mean, they weren't even talking loudly or trying to broadcast this to the airplane. We've got road rage, we've got incels, we've got racists, we've got bullies. It's just amazing what's going on. And it's making me wonder, is the mental illness that Donald Trump has contagious? I don't mean literally like a virus. Well, maybe, I, I don't know. Let's ask an expert. Dr. Justin Frank is back with us, a psychoanalyst and clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University, the author of Trump on the Couch, as well as previous on the couch books about Obama and Bush. His uh, Twitter handle is Justin Frank MD, spelled just like it sounds. Dr. Frank, welcome back. Is it contagious? Thank you, Tom. There's no such thing as a contagious psychosis. Okay. However, when a group of Americans like that woman sitting behind Louise on the airplane behave in a psychotic manner and become very outraged suddenly, it's because Trump himself has amplified and stimulated their already present psychotic anxieties. We all have some degree of psychotic anxieties that we know about when we suddenly go into a parking lot and think, oh my God, where's my car? Somebody took it. Or we get anxious and get disoriented. But it really means that Trump is not doing his job as president, that he is stimulating paranoid fears that lurk inside of all of us, and he helps people organize those fears and suspicions against the news media and against our very democracy, despite numerous investigations that have shown no election fraud. So in this sense, psychosis may seem contagious. It's stimulated by a president whose normal job is to allay anxieties or calm them down in the general public. That's what Roosevelt did with his fireside chats. We all have anxiety and a leader needs to help people manage them. Instead, Trump invites attacks on people wearing masks and, more importantly, on government institutions and elected officials. Cool. Dangerous, and it must be stopped. Yeah, and lest people think they're listening to a best of because you're using the present tense, let's use the past tense. He's a former president. And, former uh, president, but he, yes. But he is still trying to, yeah, thank God. And he, But he is still trying to crank people up. I mean, he was in Ohio this last weekend, uh, you know, yes. uh, reciting his lies and, and had thousands of cheering people going, yeah, 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 uh, lock her up, <laughs> et cetera. So how, you said it has to stop. I agree with you. How do we push back on this? How do we, how do we help people, uh, particularly, you know, friends or relatives, you know, you, you, I, I have a, a cousin who, uh, or a relative, let's say, not a cousin, actually, but a relative who, who, you know, is ranting about Trump on, positively about Trump on Facebook. And I've just been like, I can't even touch this. You know, what do we do? Well, it's very hard because when a person has a fixed belief, you can't really argue with them. You have to find your way psychologically of sitting next to them and looking at their belief system and saying something like, I know you believe this. I really do. 
but I don't see it the same way as you, and could we talk about it? I really don't think it's the same, but I do know that this is what you feel and what you believe, and I'm taking it seriously. There needs to be a way to not become dismissive the way Trump followers are dismissive of the news media and dismissive of people like you and me and dismissive of elected officials. We have to find a way to sit next to people in a calm moment and not go off on them the way they go off on us. And that's a problem when somebody's on the airplane. You can't really do that. It's important to know that we all give authority figures more authority than they might otherwise need because we were all children once and our parents knew everything. And that's how it was when you're little. And then as you get disillusioned and you look to other leaders who have answers. And there's a real deep belief in somebody having the answers. And in this case, Trump has promoted that belief even after he has lost the presidency. But he's done it in promoting this incredible attack on our democracy on January 6th. And that is converting fears into actions, which is really extremely dangerous and needs to be stopped publicly. Somehow, he needs to be shut up somehow. And I think his followers, it's almost like you have to deprogram people from a cult, you know, the way people have done who've been in other cults. Yeah, yeah, like the... There's a yearning for this. And as I wrote in my book, he's the kind of person who, as a father, would scare the hell out of his children. Then they'd have night terrors, and he'd come in and turn on the light, and he would say, only I can make your fears go away. That's how he operates. Yeah, and that's uh, pretty much literally what he said in his inaugural address and, and, and in his yes. campaigning. We're talking with Professor Justin Frank, uh, psychoanalyst and clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University, the author of Trump on the Couch and the whole In the Couch books series, uh, Twitter handle Justin Frank MD. Dr. Frank, one of the things that I didn't realize until I got to be an adult and an older adult, frankly, and something that you just referenced is that no matter how old we are, even people in their very elder years, we are all deep down inside little kids. That little child that we once were, we carry with us for our whole entire lives, and it makes us vulnerable yes. to people like these authoritarians. And so I'm wondering I, if when Trump was president, he was essentially stepping into the role of the nation's father, the nation's parent. Joe Biden fills that role right now for most people. And he's yes. been doing, it seems to me, a spectacular job of saying, okay, let's just chill out here. There's nothing to be afraid of. Don't yes. worry. We've got this under control. We're going to. So it seems to me that Biden's doing the right thing. And might that not be one of the most potent ways to dissipate the power that these wannabe autocrats, whether it's Trump or whether it's, you know, Rick Scott or, or Josh Hawley, or I mean, you pick your, pick your uh, wannabe fascist, neo-fascist here. Isn't that one of the best ways to handle it at, at the level it's of politics? One of the best way, yes, I think that's a great point, Tom. It's one of the best ways of handling people's fears is what Biden is doing. He's doing a modern version of Roosevelt's fireside and he is trying to calm people's anxieties. The problem is that Trump continues to say that Biden is not legitimate. Right. He was not elected. He should not be president. 
And I think that's where we get into big trouble. What Biden is doing as president, and more and more people understand that, is trying to allay our fears and anxieties in a very healthy way, speaking to the child parts of us that exist in all of us. And, um, And that we need to believe that somebody has answers. I mean, the shock that parents don't have all the answers gets immediately relieved when you switch it to teachers or celebrities or other people you have trust in. In my practice, that's what I do as a psychoanalyst. People have fantasies that I have all the answers, which of course I don't. And what's great about Biden is he doesn't say he has all the answers. He is consistent and calming and being a really strong, stable parental figure that we have not had in this country in a long time, and I mean a long time. Yeah, that's a good thing, and and I you know I guess yes. we need to we need to acknowledge that and be grateful for it. But uh, great advice, Dr. Frank. Thanks so much for dropping by and sharing this with all of us. Thank you so much, Tom. It's always great talking to you, and I got to tell you to my listeners and viewers, uh, Justin Frank MD is the Twitter handle. He's really worth following, Dr. Frank. Again, thank you. Thank you, Tom. Bye. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. We're reading today from Justin Frank, Dr. Justin Frank's book, Trump on the Couch, Inside the Mind of the President. He's the guy who wrote Bush on the Couch and Obama on the Couch. He's a psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. This is from the introduction. There's no question that Trump is mentally unfit in ways that make him psychologically unsuited for the presidency. That in itself is a truly alarming turn of events. And I'd write the entire book in all caps if I thought that would better convey the sense of urgency 
with which it is written and should be read. Any number of troubling mental illness diagnoses and character evaluations can be and have been accurately applied to Trump. Both can vary from analyst to analyst, however, without necessarily sacrificing any of the accuracy. More to the point, the true value of a diagnosis is to determine an appropriate course of treatment, and there's no indication that any sort of treatment is a viable option. Trump on the couch then seeks not simply to make the case that Trump is not well, but rather to show how he is unwell in ways that would have been of particular interest to the applied psychoanalysts whose investigation likely preceded our own, the Russians, and perhaps even their American allies or counterparts, who in the long tradition of intelligence gathering examined Trump's psyche and found an opportunity for exploitation. Trump's presidency caps a lifetime of dysfunction and disorder that is not likely to be healed while he is in office. Just as Trump's ascendancy among voters gives expression to long-standing trends in the American electorate's psyche that are not going to be easily addressed. However, if we can identify certain aspects of these disorders and trends that may have contributed to Trump and his voters fusing into a shared belief system, then we have a better chance of fostering the kind of honest cultural discussion that will be necessary in order to contain and repair the damage that has already been done. Understanding Trump calls for a consideration of his psychodynamics almost certainly more rigorous than he has ever embarked upon on his own. Trump dismissed psychotherapy as a crutch in his 2004 Playboy interview. Years later, talking to biographer Michael D'Antonio, he described in greater detail a generalized aversion to introspection beyond the therapeutic setting. Quote, I don't like to analyze myself because I might not like what I see, he told D'Antonio. I don't like to analyze myself. I don't like to think too much about the past, end of quote. Even armed with a detailed family history, we can't capture Trump in action with only the tools of applied psychoanalysis. Like some of the most disturbed patients I've worked with, Trump is so erratic, constantly changing the topic, elevating the stakes, and raising the volume, that one doesn't know what to expect from him next. It's hard to imagine him in treatment. Even as the subject of applied psychoanalytical investigation, he behaves like a patient who is simultaneously banging in a consulting room window rattling on his door, ringing the phone, and texting or tweeting his demands for attention. Trump presents so many troubling affects that it's hard to remember them all. In the final weeks of the first year of Trump's presidency, Michael Wolff and David K. Johnston published accounts of the Trump White House that present a president with a startling number of disturbing characteristics. Any one of these demonstrable and suspected traits would raise calls for a psychoanalytic investigation if it was done on a layperson. In a president, in aggregate, they are truly cause for alarm. The list of worrisome, evident, and alleged attributes that emerge in these and other portraits is long. Narcissist, liar, racist, sexist, adulterer, baby, hypocrite, chiseler, tax cheat, outlaw, psychopath, paranoid, fraud, ignorant, vengeful, delusional, arrogant, greedy, contemptuous, unsympathetic, learning disabled, cruel, obstructor of justice, threat to the Constitution, traitor. The list is so long that it can be overwhelming. It's a challenge to remember the beginning by the time you make it to the end. There are times when I wish someone would help us remember all the troubling aspects of Trump's character and behavior, past and present, in a way that would encourage recognition of the totality of his pathology rather than its component parts, which individually cause alarm before being temporarily forgotten when the next emergency presents itself. 
As an applied psychoanalyst, my task is not only to appreciate the full list, but also to ignore the big picture and focus on a single pathology at a time. Practitioners of applied psychoanalysis approach their subject as both theoretician and clinician. The theoretician endeavors to piece things together, to figure things out, while the clinician tries to approach each session capable of being surprised, as if his mind were a blank slate. The analysis in the following pages aspires to accomplish both goals. Reviewing Trump's record with a clinician's eye, preparing to be surprised by the unexpected observation, and assembling these findings into a more comprehensive portrait. The image of hypothetical patient Trump rattling the consulting room door and banging on the window reminds us that President Trump doesn't want us to see the entire list at once. Not only that, but patients I've treated who are reminiscent of Trump cannot tolerate being inside the consulting room either. They leave my office whenever they feel unable to think their way through an anxiety-provoking interpretation, much the way Trump leaves press briefings when the questions get too close. Trump on the Couch by Justin Frank. The rant that I wrote, which I think is kind of apropos to this for apartmentreport.com, is that uh, Democrats need to defy this bizarre white trust fund Mr. Doughboy baby, trust fund baby Tucker Carlson. You know, he's, he's the heir to the Swanson food fortune. According to him, he spent his college years mostly drunk, and he's going after General Mark Milley for saying that people in the military need to know the history of the country that they've sworn their lives to defend. Mark Milley, 39 years in the military. He's got a master's degree, Mark Milley, from Columbia University in international relations. This guy is no, and he's got two master's degrees, one from there and one from the Naval War College. And on this Fox so-called news program, Carlson says, oh, he's not just a pig, he's stupid. Now, why would Carlson say that? Well, number one, Millie is defending, teaching the history of race in the United States. And number two, Millie's boss, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, is black. So, of course, Fox is going to go all nuts all the time about Mark Milley and Lloyd Austin, and so is the right-wing media and the right-wing press. And it's just wrong. I mean, you can, you can draw a straight line from those two realities, the fact that Milley is defending, teaching the history of race in America, and his boss, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, is black. You can draw a straight line from that to the conservative media and conservative politicians' newfound hatred for the military. Remember they loved cops until the cops tried to stop them from overthrowing the country on January 6th? Then they started hating cops. You had uh, Officer Fanon, the guy who had a heart attack because he was tased repeatedly in, his, in the back of his neck and beaten mercilessly uh, as he was trying to defend the Capitol on January 6th. He met with Kevin McCarthy over the weekend, or, or uh, perhaps it was Friday, but in the last couple days walked out and what was his comment? The press said, well, what do you think? And he said, uh, I need a drink. <laughs> yeah, McCarthy, he was saying to McCarthy, why don't you, uh, why don't you, uh, you know, encourage your colleagues to not lie <laughs> at the very least about what happened on January 6th. And McCarthy was like, well, uh, maybe I'll talk to them privately, but I'm not going to say anything in public. And uh, so, you know, I'm just, you know, Kevin McCarthy is terrified of Donald Trump. He knows that if Trump just says the word, he'll have a primary opponent in California, and he won't be the House Minority Leader, set to be possibly the House Majority Leader in 2022, which brings me to the point of my whole rant over at Hartman Report, which is that 
this whole white supremacist conservative movement, if the Democrats cannot demonstrate to America that they can get things done, if Democrats can't get out there and actually make things happen, which in my opinion means blowing up the filibuster and just start passing some damn laws. Do the exact same thing Mitch McConnell did. He wanted to put Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Beerbong on the Supreme Court. There was no way he was gonna get 60 votes to do it because the Democrats would have filibustered it, which they've done going back. I mean, you know, they filibustered Robert Bork when Ronald Reagan was president. And afterwards, everybody said, yeah, that was a damn good idea. Bork is nuts. So to block the filibuster, Mitch McConnell changed the Senate rules and said, okay, filibuster doesn't apply to Supreme Court justices. The Democrats control the Senate. Get rid of the damn filibuster. Come on, Chuck Schumer. Come on, Joe Biden, President Biden. You have the tools. You can start threatening Democrats who are saying, oh, we like the filibuster. We think Republicans being in charge is a good thing. You can say to them, oh, really? Well, do you like your committee assignments? Do you like your seniority? the stick approach, the carrot approach would be, or, uh, hey, how would you like an extra committee assignment? How'd you like to have, you know, some major infrastructure in your community with your name on it? We can make that happen. I mean, this is, you know, old-timey politics, LBJ, FDR, they all knew how to do this. Joe Biden knows how to do this. He served in the Senate for almost 30 years, or in in the neighborhood of 30 years. They are not going to hold the House and Senate in 2022. And if they don't hold the House and Senate, they won't hold the White House in 2024. And if they don't hold the White House in 2024, you can kiss democracy in this republic goodbye for at least a generation. Because these Republicans and the billionaires, the neo-fascist, white supremacist billionaires who support them and own them essentially, are not gonna let go. Rob in Mount Iron, Minnesota. Hey, Rob, how you doing today? I'm doing fine. It's where, you know, like, you got a problem, Tom, because the whole thing is, is Donald Trump said there is no global warming. This is all a problem of the fake news. So the whole thing is, is where you are not sweating out there. Right. Oh, it's I'm not just sarc- Trump. It's I'm the entire doing- Republican Party. You know, there's no global I'm, warming. I'm, I'm, I'm dripping sarcasm. I get it. I get it. And so am I, along with sweat. There's a reason why these Republicans are saying this, and it's because the right-wing billionaires who made their fortunes with fossil fuels, and, and the high profile, of course, were historically Charles and David Koch, but there's a bunch of others, and the industries that they're, they collectively own and run have been for 50 years now shoveling lies and BS at us saying that there's no such thing as climate change and there's nothing to worry about and this is normal and plants like carbon dioxide and you know we need more coal-fired power plants and you know quack 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 and it's just you know it's the same stuff that I was talking about just a minute ago that if the Democrats don't start getting this situation under control the way that we're going to lose in 2022 and 2024 is that Democratic voters are going to do the exact same thing they did in 2016 when they felt that Hillary Clinton was only going to go halfway, that she was more of a corporate Democrat than a progressive, and they just didn't show up to vote. Voter turnout was down by over 100,000 votes in Wisconsin, for example. As, as In fact, I think it was over 200,000, as um, Mark Pocan has pointed out on this program a couple of times. So uh, the only thing I got to bring up go is ahead. I know somebody up there in Seattle, and the whole thing is if I gave him the spiel that I just gave you, guess what he'd finally do? He says, "You're finally waking up." Yeah. 
Well, in the Pacific Northwest. But but there's a media blackout on what's going on up here. I mean, I'm telling you, it's all about one building down in Florida. This is a local Florida story. It is probably going to end up being about corrupt developers and a dysfunctional homeowners association and corrupt building inspectors. God only knows. You know, it's going to be some intersection of that stuff. But this is a local story. Global climate change is not just a national story, it's a worldwide friggin' story. And why the media is doing disaster porn on a local Florida story for hours, it's all I'm, you know, I'm, I, I flip back and forth between MSNBC and CNN, and it's all that anybody is playing. And yeah, it's a terrible thing. Sure, it's, it's, it's a car wreck writ, writ large, and I get it, you know, when, when there's a car wreck and, and your local TV station shows up and they're using the jaws of life to get mom and, and little kid out of the car before it bursts into flames. It's a big deal, right? But that's a local story. Has the heat hit you guys in Minnesota? You're doing your best, Tom. You know, you're just like usual. Let me tell you. And I got to be able to put it to you. It's where I hope you guys finally cool down because you deserve it. It's where now you guys are used to these temperatures. Yeah, thank you. No, we're uh, nobody is used to 114 degrees. I mean, outside of Death Valley in Las Vegas, and it's hotter here right now than it is in Las Vegas. Unbelievable. Which is absolutely insane. What's the temperature in Minnesota, Rob? Right now, we got 74 degrees. Oh, geez. I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) I'd give it to you if I could put it in an envelope. (laughs) Incredible. Rob, thanks a lot. It's good to hear from you. Just a couple of quick stories here, and then I want to pick up your phone calls. Number one, remember when the uh, Republicans all over the country were going, oh, my God, nobody wants to work, and nobody wants to work because we're giving everybody 300 bucks a week and extra unemployment benefits. And so, you know, like 12 or 15 Republican states immediately, excuse me, 26 states, including Missouri, have decided to cut that benefit. So this week, and in some of those states last week, people stopped getting their $300 checks. And because Republicans said, ah, once we starve them out, they'll, they'll show up for work. Well, turns out, this is from the New York Times, workforce development officials say they have seen virtually no uptick in applicants since the governor's announcement, this is in Missouri, which ended a $300 weekly supplement to other benefits. And the online job site found that in states that have abandoned the federal benefits, clicks on job postings were still well below the national average. It's not the 300 bucks. It's the lack of childcare. It's the fear of COVID. It's low wages. I think a lot of people during this past year just said, hey, I'm going to reevaluate my life. You know, what's really important to me and what's not. So it's all that stuff. And then in Ohio, this last story, this this is um, grim and bizarre. You'll recall that when George Floyd was murdered in, uh, this was in Minnesota, when he was murdered, it was this 17-year-old girl who stood there for eight, nine, ten minutes and and videotaped the entire thing, filmed it, or all of those words are anachronistic now, but you know what I mean, caught it on her cell phone camera. She was the one who let the world know. I mean, if that had not happened, if that young woman had not been able or had been legally afraid of videotaping that, or if the police had had, there there were four cops on the scene there, right? If one of those police had the legal authority to go around and snatch cameras from people and say, you're committing a crime, or even throw them in the back of a paddy wagon, we never would have known what happened to George Floyd. The official story, you'll recall, the official story that Derek Chauvin and his buddies reported was that, oh, he just seems to have died. He must have been on drugs. And that would be, you know, and it would just uh, another black guy died. And it would have been a 30-second story, if that. Well, the state of Ohio now, the Republicans in the House of Representatives in Ohio are advancing Bill 22, House Bill 22, that makes it a crime to videotape police officers when they're doing their jobs. 
without the consent of the law enforcement officer. You are committing a crime if you videotape them. So you have to go up and say, may I please take your picture? And of course they're going to say yes, right? Yes, watch me while I kill this guy. Okay, we're a little cranked and a little hot and a little sweaty, but we'll be back. God willing, and the computers don't fail. Diana in Sanford, Maine. Hey, Diana, what's on your mind today? The filibuster. Mm -hmm. And I am hearing that you have a little bit more hope. And I am sad to say this time I am more pessimistic about it. I think Joe Manchin and Cinema they're just messing with us so bad. I believe that they, uh, they're taking the corporate money. I think they all are. I think there are more Democrats doing that now than they would like us to think. Yeah. I am even listening to Romney. I think that everybody, you know, they're not doing the work in Congress. They're just like taking the money on Fox News and yeah, no, and and, and, and Romney's a vulture fund left, billionaire. You know? Yeah, and there was a fascinating <laughs> piece. I think it was a blog on Daily Kos. Might have been over at DU. I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. it was on one of those sites. You know, where just average people post blogs about what's going on in their communities. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was from a uh, somebody in the Democratic Party in Arizona. And what they said mm-hmm. is that the Democratic Party in Arizona right now is in an extreme crisis because yeah. they are having a very hard time raising money because the Democratic donors are concerned that money they give to the Democratic Party in Arizona might end up with Kirsten Cinema, And they are so yes. pissed off at Kirsten Cinema they want to make sure that the money doesn't end up in her back pocket. And so they're just withholding funds. I mean, it is making it harder for them to do anything in that state, which, yeah. of course, is exactly I, what Republicans say, want. I do want to share something. This is the power of Fox News and Next Max. I have had my ex-somebody who's called Biden a communist, my six-year-old grandson, and he said, Joe Biden is out of here. We are getting rid of him. He's six years old, and he hears that from his wow. his other his grandparents. Yeah. I am so sad about this and upset. Yeah, and I we're dealing with a propaganda machine. It's just that simple. Tom Hartman here with you, and uh, on the line with us is Andrew Perez. He writes for the Daily Poster, David Sirota's uh, uh, daily newsletter. I'm not sure exactly what y'all call it, uh, Andrew. Maybe you could tell us. Daily Poster with you, and uh, on the line with us is Andrew Perez. He writes for the Daily Poster, David Sirota's uh, uh, daily newsletter. I'm not sure exactly what y'all call it, uh, Andrew. Maybe you could tell us. DailyPoster.com is the website. Andrew P E R E Z D C or at Daily Poster are the two Twitter handles. Andrew, uh, tell us about this brilliant piece. They've been doing it forever about United Healthcare. This was a kind of a one-day story a few months ago that they were planning on blocking people from using the emergency room or at least paying for the emergency room. Tell us about this. Yeah, a couple weeks ago, United Healthcare announced this new policy where they were going to start more heavily scrutinizing emergency room visits to assess whether these are true emergencies. And so they would then deny or limit coverage in those cases. But what we found is that United Healthcare has been doing something like this for, for some time now, where they've been rejecting, retroactively denying people's emergency room visits, saying that it didn't meet the definition of an emergency or that you know physician documentation didn't support it. They've done this in some pretty egregious cases that definitely seem like emergencies or at least where people you know had, had good reason to think it might be an emergency when they went to the ER. 
That's incredible. I, I noticed that there was another article. It wasn't, I don't think it was Daily Poster, but there was a, another piece that I got in, in the mail this morning or yesterday about how the uh, union, some of the, one of the, apparently the oversight group for the unions in New York that handles their health insurance and stuff, just flipped a bunch of union retirees off Medicare, where they were just basically paying for a, a Medigap policy, flipped them off Medicare onto Medicare Advantage. This is presumably United Healthcare. They're the largest Medicare Advantage provider in the country. And so the deductibles went from $1,000 and change to $7,000 and change. Now, if you want to have a procedure or show up in the ER, you've got to get the permission of the health insurance company instead of just, you know, what normal people on normal Medicare, you just get whatever you need or whatever you want and Medicare pays for it. I'm not asking you to comment specifically on that, but it seems like there's, there's this much larger trend of the health insurance companies just tightening the screws on anybody that they can control, whether it's retirees who are now being shifted into Medicare Advantage, on you know, which is privatized health insurance. It's not actually Medicare. These BS policies that you know were promoted by the Bush administration back in 2005, or whether it's the story that you're telling. I mean, tell us a story about this kid who had the autoimmune disorder, for example. We spoke to a physician who brought his son to the ER twice in the span of a couple of weeks because his son was vomiting for uh, several weeks, you know, feeling nauseous, experiencing bad reflux. I guess while he was at the ER the first time, they, they, they did some tests on him, you know, they admitted him, they did some tests, um, and they found that he had an autoimmune disorder, had newly onset. It's actually a fairly common one. Afterwards, the United Healthcare denied some of the bills here, saying that, you know, that it wasn't an emergency, that the physician documentation didn't support that. But, you know, this guy was is a physician, and he, he just, like, couldn't believe that this was happening to him, you know. They left him with, like, 7000 in bills, United Healthcare did. One of these, like, hospital staffing companies is now asking, well, demanding, like, $4,000 from him. Because, you know, they want to get paid one way or another, obviously. And, yeah, United Healthcare has denied it so far. And he hired a lawyer who we talked to, um, and she helped connect us with another one of her patients. We found several complaints like this where, you know, people, like, bring their kids to the ER when, they, when they're, when like, this, this family in Washington State brought their daughter, their young daughter, to the ER after, uh, you know, she woke up gasping for air. They called 911. Paramedics said, get her to the ER. And, you know, she had croup, which is not like a fatal disease, but it's it's one of those things where, like, you're supposed to seek medical care if you can't breathe, like, especially in children if they can't breathe. United Healthcare ended up proving that appeal, but that's sort of what they're starting to demand that people actually do. They're saying if they suspect that something's not an emergency, they're going to make you perform this complete this like attestation, like write to them why it is, prove to them it is an emergency. But there are federal rules here where like you're supposed to be able to seek emergency care on insurance if you need to. And you know, obviously people who, who are uninsured are also protected going to the emergency room too. But yeah, so there are federal rules here and uh, you know, some, some organizations have said this policy might violate those rules, the, the federal uh, layperson standard, prudent layperson standard, which is this idea that if you think that you're having a serious emergency, that you think it'll, you know, whatever's happening to you uh, can, can affect your, you know, uh, your well-being uh, permanently, like you should be able to go to the, the ER. So it's, it's, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons this is even happening is obviously Hospitals have grown increasingly expensive. Emergency rooms are one of the most expensive places you can seek care. Um, but, you know, they're there for a reason.
Mm-hmm. They, they are there for a reason, and uh, there are rules that are meant to protect you if you go to the ER. Right. Yeah, for sure. And in fact, if you go to the ER for some just, you know, hey, I've got an ingrown toenail, they won't let you in. I mean, <laughs> uh, or, you know, or they'll they'll immediately say, OK, you're right. Although that would still generate a bill. So we're talking with Andrew Perez, senior editor at The Daily Poster, dailyposter.com. So, Andrew, if any of the people who are listening or watching right now and have health insurance through, I'm assuming United Healthcare is not the only company doing this. And if they are the only company doing this, within a year, it'll be a trend across all of these uh, giant blood-sucking ticks that have attached themselves to the back of our nation, uh, the, the so-called health insurance companies. If this happens to somebody, what should they do? Yeah, I would say definitely appeal, uh, definitely write to your state regulator if you're on an individual health insurance plan or a, a small group plan. Um, and otherwise, you know, the Department of Labor also takes, takes complaints um, from, from uh, people on employer-funded plans, uh, which probably would be most people who, are, who have health insurance or on employer-funded plans. Um, but yeah, I would say definitely file a complaint if you have an issue. Um, I would say they'll probably, in a lot of these cases, actually accept the appeal. You know, I think I think the point here is to is to deny, uh, you know, these claims out, like at least initially. Um, I do think they probably expect that people will appeal. But you know, the truth is, most people do not appeal. It's not an easy. Andrew, you made a great point. Andrew, thank you so much for uh, for sharing that with us. People can check it out at dailyposter.com, Andrew Perez DC on Twitter or Daily Poster on Twitter as well. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit tomhartman.com for audio and video archives. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, for the Tom Hartman University Book Club today, we're reading... From the crash of 2016. This is from chapter five. Chapter five is titled Reagan Kidnapped the Jetsons. In a 1966 article, Time magazine looked toward the future and what the rise of automation would mean for average working Americans. It concluded, quote, 
By 2000, the machines will be producing so much that everyone in the U.S. will, in effect, be independently wealthy. With government benefits, even non-working families will have, by one estimate, an annual income of $30,000 to $40,000. How to use leisure meaningfully will be a major problem. End of quote. And that was thirty to forty thousand dollars in nineteen sixty-six dollars, which would roughly be one hundred ninety-nine thousand to two hundred sixty thousand dollars in twenty ten dollars. Ask anybody who was a teenager or older in the nineteen sixties. This was a big sales pitch for automation and the coming computer age. There was even a cartoon show about it, The Jetsons, and everybody looked forward to the day when increased productivity from robots, computers, and automation would translate into fewer hours worked, or more pay, or both, for every American worker. And there was good logic behind the idea. The premise was simple. With better technology, companies would become more efficient. They'd be able to make more things in less time. Revenues would skyrocket, and and Americans would bring home higher and higher paychecks, all the while working fewer and fewer hours. So by the year 2000, according to Time magazine in 1966, we would enter what was then referred to as the leisure society. Futurists speculated that the biggest problem facing America in that Jetsons future of the year 2000 would be just how the heck everyone would use all their extra leisure time. And of course, there were also those who worried about what kind of degeneracy would emerge when a nation has lots of money and free time on its hands. Neither happened, and it didn't happen, because Ronald Reagan stole the leisure society from us and handed it over to the economic royalists. In 1981, the royalists went right to work, taking down that first pillar on which FDR rebuilt the American middle class, progressive taxation. Taking advantage of the oil shock crisis, neoliberal shock troopers immediately ushered through a revolutionary change in the tax code with the Economic Recovery Act of 1981. The first major piece of legislation signed by Reagan has slashed the top marginal income tax rate from 70% to 50%, cutting estate taxes for wealthy businesses and slashing capital gains and corporate profit taxes. Reagan succeeded a few years later in dropping the top income tax rate even more to 28%, where it hadn't been since the Great Depression. It was the second largest tax cut in history, and it was nearly identical to the largest tax cut ever. Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon's in the 1920s, the one that created the bubble known as the Roaring Twenties, which eventually burst in 1929. The great forgetting had certainly arrived. The economic mistakes of the 1920s were coming back around. And again, the influx of all this hot money in the market coupled with a robust deregulation agenda throughout the 1980s and 90s, would trigger a series of painful financial panics. The reason why the Leisure Society could be imagined by Time magazine is because ever since 1900, working people's wages tracked evenly with working people's productivity. So as productivity continued to rise, which was likely due to increased automation and better technology, so too would everyone's wages. And the glue holding this logic together was the current top marginal income tax rate. In 1966, when the Time article was written, the top marginal income tax rate was 70%. And what that effectively did was encourage CEOs to keep more money in their businesses, to invest in new technology, to pay their workers more, to hire new workers and expand. After all, what's the point of sucking millions and millions of dollars out of your business if it's going to be taxed at 70%? According to this line of reasoning, if businesses were to suddenly become more profitable and efficient thanks to automation, then that money would flow throughout the businesses, raising everyone's standard of living, increasing everyone's leisure time. But when Reagan dropped that top tax rate down to 28%, everything changed, as you can see in this graph. Now, as businesses became more profitable, there was a far greater incentive for CEOs to pull those profits out of the company and pocket them because they were suddenly paying an incredibly low tax rate. 
And that's exactly what they did. All those new profits, thanks to automation, that were supposed to go to everyone, giving us all higher paychecks and more time off, instead went to the top, to the economic royalists. Suddenly, the symmetry in the productivity wages chart broke down. Productivity continued increasing because technology continued improving, but wages stayed flat. And again, since higher and higher profits could be sucked out of the company and taxed at lower and lower levels, there was no incentive to reduce the number of hours everyone worked. In the 1950s, before that Time Magazine article predicted the leisure society, uh, before that article was written, the average American working in manufacturing put in about 42 hours of work a week. Today, the average American working in manufacturing puts in about 40 hours a week. This means that despite the fact that productivity has increased 400 percent since 1950, Americans are working on average only two fewer hours a week. If productivity is four times higher than in 1950, then Americans should be able to work four times less or just 10 hours a week to afford the same 1950s lifestyle when a family of four could get by on just one paycheck, own a home, own a car, put their kids through school, take a vacation every now and then, and retire comfortably. But all that was wiped out by Reaganomics and Ronald Reagan. And that's just the beginning of the setup for the crash of 2016. And welcome back, Carol, in Bridgeton, New Jersey. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind today? Well, I was calling with regard to what's happening here in Bridgeton, New Jersey. We have a private wastewater facility, the Cumberland County Utilities Authority. Mm-hmm. And Bernhard Capital uh, Partners from New Orleans has come in here, and they want to either privatize the facility either through a concession or a purchase or a combination of both. It's been really undercover with all of the utility authorities. Three members of the board have been replaced so that they could get yes votes. The Cumberland County freeholders are acting like they didn't know about it. However, they met with this equity company back in February of 2020. And then all of a sudden, on May 20th of 21, the board has a presentation from Bernard Private uh, Equity Company, and they want to put through an award on June 17th. The public never had any knowledge of it, but yet all of these officials have been meeting. June, June 17th um, was a week and a half ago. Is, is this a done correct. deal now? No, it's not a done deal because everybody got up in arms and now they're oh, extending good. it until August. But yeah. however, they're still going forward with this RFQ. These people are corporate raiders. Yep. They're, they're, taking, they're doing a hostile takeover to monetize the assets of a wastewater facility. Yeah, this um, is, is how Mitt Romney ridiculous. became a billionaire. It's 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 obscene. It shouldn't well, be allowed. It's and you know we, I think there's cooperation between Senator Sweeney here in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a, he, he currently has a bill called R I C H. It's the rich bill that he's trying to get through, which talks about monetizing these wastewater facilities. They're trying to say it's for broadband. We're such a poor county here. Mm-hmm. We're one of the poorest counties in South Jersey. You know, people's jobs, they had some stability, um, and we're really up against it trying to um, put a hold on this. We're not getting a lot of support. We're not getting the uh, freeholders are, are using COVID as the guise not to let us into public meetings. We've right. put up signs. We're trying to get a billboard. Um, but we all know what, ha- what happens when they privatize. 
Yeah. They're not, they're going to make money off the backs of the ratepayers. Yeah, absolutely. That's I mean that's the reason they do it. <laughs> it's the only absolutely. one reason they they do these kinds of things. So Carol, is there a website or a Facebook page or anything that people can go to if they want to we support your efforts? We have a website um, on Facebook. It's called the Cumberland County Sewer Rate Watch. Okay. A Cumberland and, County uh, Sewer Rate Watch. Okay. Watch. Carol, yeah. I got to move. And you know, we, go ahead. Well, one more thing. We know that privatization fosters corruption. Yes. And we know that happens because people get bribes, and that's exactly what's happened here. And it's in plain sight. It's like it's like watching what's transpired in this country the last six years on the on the federal level. Yeah, that's so unfortunate. <laughs> Carol, thank you. I, I'm yeah. I'm sorry. I, I've got a time thing here, but I got so I got to run. But thank you for the call, and thanks for sharing that with us, uh, Sandra in Omaha. Let's try it again. Okay, I just wanted to let you know your extreme temps aren't that unusual. In June of 1981, my folks invited me and my two very young children out to Walla Walla, Washington to visit family. So we drove out there, and suddenly, the week we were there, the temperatures were in the 110, 114 range. No one had air conditioning. We went out to the beach, and standing in the water, we couldn't get back to where the grass was because the sand was so hot, and no one had sandals. Right. So there were some people that helped me carry my, my children because they were toddlers. They helped carry them over that hot sand because they were screaming it was so hot. And I thought, well, this, this could never happen again. So now that it's happening again, I'm thinking that once in a thousand years uh, event is happening this year and then next year it's going to happen again yeah. and again and again. So we might as well get used to it. Yeah, we have been or pouring fossil fuels into the atmosphere for a mere... 150 years, right? Yeah, uh, you, yeah. you go back before the Civil War. People, people used, uh, you know, uh, uh, beeswax and and uh, you know, heated with firewood. And um, we were starting to use coal around that time, um, but uh, that's when we really start. So it's just you know, 150, 170 years we have been doing this, and we have poured so much carbon in, and using the atmosphere as an open sewer. We have poured so much carbon into the air that uh, it is, it, it is, it's just killing us it is just yeah. absolutely killing us and you're right these are you know this should be a once in a thousand year event if that and it shouldn't have lasted three days and I'm very concerned you know and I'm also very concerned that we had a terrible fire season here in uh, in Oregon uh, last year I don't know if it's hitting you in Nebraska yeah. yet but uh, I think Not that <laughs> you know our trees are in shock right now and I, I am very concerned about the fire season this year particularly the forthcoming you know I mean they're talking about fireworks displays and things wow Sandra I gotta run but thank you for the call thank you for being with us today we'll be back tomorrow hopefully our building will get their air conditioning fixed today <laughs> I won't have Nate pouring water down my back every hour on the break uh, and Sean had some frozen grapes she had grapes in the freezer that was though that saved my life that was just thank you Sean anyhow we'll be back tomorrow in the meantime get out there get active on tag your end there's so much we can do become a precinct committee person we'll see you tomorrow have a great afternoon be good to the people around you take good care of yourself You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.